You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. The Fruitful Life Part 2. So we're going to continue. We did verses 1 through 11 in chapter 15 last week. And this is what we learned. We learned that Jesus is teaching about, uh, the kind of the theological title would be union with Christ. <clears throat> union with Christ. Which is, Jesus teaches in a very earthy metaphor. He says, I am a grapevine and you are branches coming off the grapevine. So you're connected to me, and you're going to bear fruit. You're going to grow grapes, but you're only going to grow grapes as a believer as you're connected in me. And so to ensure that you are fruitful and grow a lot of grapes, I'm going to prune you, which means I'm going to cut you back at times, limit you, um, so that you can bear more fruit. And you are called to abide in me. That is, you're to, even though you're already connected, you're to cultivate that connection to Christ and uh, then you're going to bear fruit. And the passage we're going to read today, he really describes what is a fruitful life. So last week we talked a lot about fruit, but what does that mean to be a fruitful Christian, a fruitful disciple, a fruitful follower of Jesus? Well, he describes it uh, very clearly in verses 12 through 17. So let's, let's listen to these words, uh, these verses from Jesus together. This is God's word to us today. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Well, this passage is about love, and the idea is that because of our connection to Christ, uh, what he wants to produce in us in, in terms of fruit is love, love for other people. Now, here is a way, this is a little bit of an interpretive key in terms of interpreting scripture, this is a helpful, something that's been helpful to me over the years when someone pointed this out to me, is that when you have a section of scripture and it has a theme and then another theme, kind of, we call that bracketing, kind of bracketing a section, everything in that section oftentimes ties to the theme of the brackets. And in this paragraph, we get a very clear bracketed theme. Look at verse 12, the first verse of the paragraph. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now look at verse 17, the last verse of the paragraph. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now they're not identical, but the idea of loving one another is the primary point of both of those verses. So it is fair as we interpret the passage to say the verses that are in between tie to that introductory verse and that concluding verse, which all have to do with the love of God. And when you take that loving others, the call of loving others with the love of God, with what came before it was our connection with Christ. He's the vine, we're the branches. What you see is that our connection to Christ's love is to overflow our lives into love for one another. And we're all gonna, also going to see that it's to overflow our lives into love for those who don't yet know Christ. 
We are to love him as he has loved us. Look back in verse 9. This we saw last week. But there he says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. The Father's loved me. I've loved you, Jesus says, so abide in that love. We saw last week that to abide means, to abide in Christ is to live with a conscious dependence upon him. And so to abide in his love, think about this, is to live with a conscious dependence upon the love of God for me. That the, Jesus says, I have loved you, now abide in that love. That means I'm to think about how Christ has loved me. I am to consider how he's expressed that love for me. And that is to produce something in me so that then I share the same kind of love with other people. You know, sometimes the reality is we're just not real loving. Christians aren't real loving at all times. And and frankly, our reputation in the broader culture is not that we're necessarily the most loving people. Some of that's unfair, but some of that's quite fair. There are times we're not very loving, you know, and we can think, man, I wasn't very loving in that moment or in that day or in that week or in that season of my life. Hopefully we don't have to go longer periods than that for that decade. That was a bad decade. I wasn't very loving as a Christian. We're we're working our way out of decades of, uh, you know, unloveliness. So, but we, we look at that and here's one of the reasons. There's a lot of reasons. We have flesh, we're sinners. Okay, there's a lot of reasons we're not loving. But I think this verse that we just read would teach sometimes we're not loving because we're not abiding in the love of Christ. We're not considering and thinking and marinating in and breathing in what Christ has done for us. We're not thinking about how he has personally, sacrificially set his affection on us and loved us, so it's not producing anything in us that we extend to others. Our tank is empty of the love of Christ, and so we have nothing to love others with. But Jesus says, fill your tank, abide in me, draw strength from me, live conscious throughout your day of how Christ has loved you, and so have your heart melted and softened by the love of God that you in turn love other people. That's the flow. That's how the vine gives life to the branches. That's how the vine produces fruit in the branches. It's when the branches are soaking in the love of God. And that has to do with mentally thinking about what he's done for us. Union with Christ connects us with Christ's love to be produced in others. And we're going to see in a minute, it also connects us to Christ's mission. And so that's what I want to talk about today. Union with Christ connects us to his love, and it connects us to his mission. First of all, his love. Last week we saw we already have a vital union with him, and yet he tells us to abide in his love. And sometimes abiding can seem sort of impractical and mystical, and what is that? But there is a very real street-level value to abiding in his his love. And that's this, that as we abide in his love, it produces love for others in us. That is the goal. And he gives us in verses 14 to 16, three examples. This is very concrete. Three examples of how he's loved us. So he says, you love others as I've loved you. And let me tell you how I have loved you. He gives us three examples. Here's the first one in verse 14. You are my friends. No, let's go to verse 13. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. The first way Christ has loved us, he's laid down his life for us. He's laid down his life for us. This last week, sadly, was another grievous example of a school shooting. 
This time, it was at the University of North Carolina when a gunman broke into a classroom and started firing. And as I read about that this week, I came across a story of a student who was there and paid a price with his life to ultimately provide safety for others. This is an article I read about it. When a gunman opened fire in a University of North Carolina at Charlotte classroom, sending people diving for cover and rushing toward the door, student Riley Howell charged and knocked into the shooter, police say. Howell died for his efforts. Shot by the gunman, he rushed. But he was the first and foremost hero in bringing Tuesday evening shooting to an end, Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Chief Kerr Putney said. He took the fight to the assailant, Putney said Wednesday. Unfortunately, he had to give his life to do so. But he saved lives doing so. Putney said the 21-year-old Howell, one of two people killed in the shooting, knocked the gunman off his feet and helped lead to his capture. An officer ran into the classroom, disarmed the suspect, and arrested him, police said. The shooter entered a classroom Tuesday evening and opened fire just as Howell and about 30 other students were listening to the final presentations in their liberal studies class. Two people died, four were injured. In a statement, Howell's family said, He always stood up for what he believed and didn't hesitate to help those in need. His faith was strong, and he knew what he had to do when people needed him most, the family said in a statement Wednesday. He was always the guy you could count on, and he delivered. He put others before himself, one of his sisters, Juliet Howell, told NBC. He always has. It's powerful. He's always put others before himself. And in this case, it cost him his life. But it certainly saved the lives of others. Have you ever wondered why that kind of a story resonates with us emotionally and stirs us and inspires us. The story of of a hero uh, giving up his or her life for the well-being of other people. It's the plot line of countless movies and novels. It's the stuff of documentaries that moves us when we see soldiers in military combat or first responders, firefighters or police in, in 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 a tragic context or rescuers Uh, who ultimately lose their own life trying to save somebody else from drowning or fire, whatever the case may be. Those kind of stories move us. And the reason, I believe, is because we are hardwired in the constitution of our very beings to be moved by that kind of story because that is the story of God. That is the story of God imprinted on every soul as we are created in the image of God. 
The story of the Bible and the story of the universe is of God coming himself, becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ to rescue people in their helplessness. To not just rescue them by giving them a helping hand, but to rescue them by laying down his very life and dying as a substitute in our place. And as fantastic as the example of Riley Howell is, and I don't mean to take anything away from his example or anyone else's example who've laid down their life for someone, the example of Jesus Christ far surpasses them all because the example of Jesus Christ is God himself who has come to us, a rebellious people who have denied denied his word and his law and his rulership and have said, we will live as we choose to live. Yes, God, you have created us. Yes, God, you have provided blessings for us. But no, thank you, God. We will live for ourselves. We will create gods of our very own and worship our own purposes and goals and philosophies of life. And God comes to those very ones that have rebelled against him. And he, he takes, in the person of Jesus, he's nailed to a cross, takes our sins upon himself, and dies for us with words like, like, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. This is God who holds the law and says, if you are guilty of the law, you will be punished, you will be condemned, you will be damned for eternity. This same God who establishes the law comes and pays the price for our sin. This is astounding good news. And the reason stories of sacrifice motivate us is because that is the very heart of God. And Jesus says, this is how you know I love you. Greater love has no one than this. That is the motive of his sacrifice, so that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so you love one another. So what does that mean? Most of us will not have a moment like I just read about. Most of us will not have a moment where in a split second we need to make a choice, take a bullet so that others may live or not. Most of us will never stand in front of someone and offer our lives physically as a, you know, in, in, a, in a moment of tragedy like that. Most of us will never, maybe no one in the room will ever face something like that. So what does it mean for us to lay down our lives? It means that every day in a thousand different ways, we die small little deaths to ourselves. Following Jesus and expressing love for others, he expressed love for us in the grandest of way, putting our needs above his own by laying down his life. But we're called to put others' needs above our own in countless small ways, countless unseen ways, countless behind-the-scene ways. We are to, Jesus says it this way, take up our cross daily. He doesn't mean physically die daily. He means that every day you are to die to yourself because of the love of Christ for you, expressing that to other people. So what daily death looks like for each of us, is it could be different, but it means preferring people above ourselves. It means taking time when you don't have the time to actively listen to a lonely person, that lonely senior or that lonely young person or, or whoever it may be your lonely friend. It's, it's actively listening and taking an interest and making time for focused attention and care for someone else. It means reaching out and including someone socially who lives on the margins, who lives on the margins by virtue of their socioeconomic status or maybe their race or something else, maybe their disability or whatever. It's, it's reaching out and including those that society, for whatever reason, may 
exclude. It's providing physical help to someone when we are tired and don't feel like it. Yeah, so we read that and go, okay, well, yeah, if, in, if a shooter ever shows up, I'll give my life. Okay, that's wonderful. It honestly is. But between now and that time, there's, like a th- there's dishes that need to be done. There's kids that need to be put to bed. Okay, so sometimes this is practically worked out. If you're a guy, if you're a dad, it's when you come home and you don't want to have another conversation or you don't want to get out of your lounge chair because you are mentally and physically tired. It means getting up and saying, I'm going to die to myself for the good of my spouse and my children. That's what it means in very tangible ways. As Christ has loved us, may his love motivate us and change our mindset and change our expectations so that we love those closest to us in a situation like that. It means inconveniencing ourselves. What is it to lay down our lives? It means inconveniencing ourselves in numerous ways. It means overlooking a minor offense when someone has offended us. It means overlooking that because what has Christ overlooked in my life? And it also means confronting someone out of love on a more serious offense, out of love for them and their well-being, speaking the truth in love. So sometimes it means dying to myself and taking a risk of communicating a concern or a correction to someone. Laying down our life means oftentimes death to our pride. It means dying to my pride and asking forgiveness, owning what I did and asking someone's forgiveness when that is the last thing in the world I feel like doing. It also means uh, extending forgiveness to the person that I would like to nurse a grudge. I would like to hold it over their head a little bit longer. But how did Christ relate to me? He laid down his life to forgive me, and so I gladly am to extend the same forgiveness that Jesus has extended to me. Loving sacrifice, laying down our lives, is not usually about physical death. It's usually about sacrificing something precious to us. Here's what I find. Loving others often comes at the expense of my own idol. It means that I've got to tear down an idol and worship Jesus and love him as he's loved me and express love to others. The idol of comfort is a big one. But when I think about my life, our culture, the, the environment we live in, one of the biggest idols is our time. Many of us are, are, we press ourselves so much that time is the most valuable commodity we have. Our calendars are full, our activities are full, and it's sometimes even a badge of honor. Wow, I'm really busy, as if that means we're important when it may just mean we're stupid and we're doing too much stuff. It's sometimes it's a badge, we hold it out like a badge of honor when it should be a declaration of our shame. We should be asking forgiveness because I don't have time to do what God wants me to do because I filled my calendar with all this stuff that I think I want to do or somebody else thinks I want to do and I got to please them, right? So, so it's our time is so valuable. I find that when I can give time to another person, that is sometimes the most precious gift we can give. You never get that back. You've only got so much of it. And when you give it to someone to listen, to help, to befriend, to serve, when you are the ears of Christ to them, when you are the hands of Jesus to serve them in some way, the feet of Christ to go to them, when you give your time for someone, that is a way to lay down your life and for me to lay down my life. Another one is our money. 
We do live in a consumeristic culture, and we want security in money. We want stuff and things. We want marks of status to win the approval of others, or at least not to fall below the baseline of what's expected in Frisco, Texas. At least not to stand out as someone who doesn't have what you're supposed to have to live here. And so the same thing, when I give of my money, both funding the ministry here of our family life together as a church and our mission, giving to someone specifically who has a need, treating someone, buying something for someone or their children who, who, uh, who's in a, in a tough situation, communicating love through a meaningful gift that I give to someone, what, what, whatever it could be, when we give of our time and when we give of our finances, that is tangible ways that we lay down our lives. And the issue is that many of us have no margin in our lives on either way. Our calendar is slotted full. And we're up to our eyeballs in expenses or over our eyeballs drowning in debt. And so we have no margin time-wise, no margin financially, so we can't lay down our lives. We're just trying to survive. Now, obviously, we can lay down our lives in other ways. There's many ways that we can lay down our lives in terms of giving our, our, uh, serving other people, for sure. But those are two big ones. And so I, th- I was thinking about that, that I need to have margin with my calendar, and I need to have margin with my budget so that I'm able to make meaningful sacrifices for the benefit of other people. This summer, we're doing summer classes, and uh, we have a class that I think would serve in each of those areas. We have a finance class we're doing this summer. If you don't have margin in your finances so that you're not able to be the blessing, I know you want to be a blessing, but you're not able to be the kind of blessing you, you want to be because you know God wants you to be, then I would take that class. You can sign up online, and it'll help you this summer with some hands-on tools. We're also going to have a, a class um, that Aaron's going to teach on productivity, How can I be fruitful in my life? What does it mean to organize and prioritize my life biblically so that I'm productive and bearing fruit in the things God calls me to? What does that mean? Those are two classes you could take and really benefit in the area I'm talking about right now. So I'm trying to be tangible, practical. What does it mean to lay down our lives? It means all that and and more, I'm sure. Number two, how has he loved us? If we're to love others as he loved us, he's made us friends. He's made us friends. Greater love has no one, verse 13, than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Friends. He's made us his friends. This is really amazing. He's not saying... I want to be clear in this one verse here. He's not saying, obey all my commandments and earn and deserve my friendship. The whole course of the New Testament goes against that. Jesus has just said, I laid down my life for you to make you friends. You didn't do anything. Uh, You just received his sacrifice. Um, And he's about to say, I chose you. So he chose us as friends. He laid down his life for us as friends. We are his friends if we keep his commandments, mean you really show that you've come into a union with me and a friendship relationship with me if you live a life that reflects what I'm about. So you're my friend, you're connected to me, you're the branches and I'm the vine if your life is looking like I'm producing life in you. That's what he's saying. It's a testimony to our friendship, it's not what merits the friendship. And he distinguishes us friends from servants here. I no longer call you servants, he says, verse 15. Why? Well, we're still, we serve God. The word servant is used to describe us. But he says, but the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. 
So he's saying, you're not the kind of servant that just comes in and I say, here's the five things to do, no questions asked, go do them. You're not like just some hired hand. We're in relationship. And I have revealed to you what my father is doing. I've taken you into my confidence. I've cared for you. I've told you about the kingdom of God. He's ex- with them, he's explaining parables in private. With us, he's explaining parables in public in the scripture. So we get all that. But he's saying, I'm drawing you in. I'm teaching you about the kingdom of God. I'm welcoming you into my family. Um, I am reconciling you with the Father. We're going to see in a minute. I'm calling you to the mission that I am about to include you in the mission. And so this is what he means. You're not just out doing things like a servant. We're in relationship together. In the Old Testament, only Abraham and Moses are called friends of God. In the New Testament, Jesus said, everyone that believes and follows me, it's going to be a life-giving union, a life-giving connection, like, like a grapevine and its, grape, and its branches. It's going to be life-giving like a friendship where I tell you the purpose of God. It, it, it's that kind of a relationship. This is astounding. Friend of God? I mean, there's a lot of titles that I think are much easier. When you read the Bible, the loftiness of God, the holiness of God, the grandeur of God, the eternality of God. There's a lot of titles that would make sense instead of friend of God. How about creature of God? All creatures of our God and King. We come in worship. He created us. So creature, yeah, I get that. Subject, I get that. He's the king, we're the subjects. I get that. Sheep, he's the shepherd, we're the sheep. Okay, I get that. Sheep are dumb animals. I get that. Worshiper, okay, I get that. We're here. We're here to worship you. You're great. We're worshiping you. Follower, that's what disciple means, a student or a follower. Sure. Believer, yeah, I get that title. I believe in Jesus. Yes, believer for sure. Even, even child, son or daughter of the Lord, that's an amazing privilege as well to be drawn within his family. But even there, some of you are children that Earth, in an earthly way, you don't have a friendship with your earthly parent, perhaps. Or even if you're a parent, a young child, you don't draw them into everything. You do say, just do as I say. <laughs> we do say that sometimes to little kids. But he's saying, it's not that kind. Here, it is, I'm drawing you in as friend. Romans 5 says, we were enemies and he reconciled us. What does that mean? We were enemies, and at his initiative, he broke down the barrier and made us friends. We put up the barrier, he broke down the barrier, giving his life, and made us friends. It's really, it's, it makes Christ, the Christian faith unique. It makes it unique that we have a friendship with God. So, how does he love us? He makes us his friends, he lays down his life, and thirdly and finally, he chooses us. Verse 16 You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. You did not choose me, I chose you. Now, practically, he chose the disciples. They were out fishing. He said, drop your nets. I'll pick you. Come with me. Um, Matthew, the tax collector, get up and follow me. So he certainly specifically picked them to follow him, but it's broader than that. If you read the scripture, you'll see that everyone who's a believer has been chosen God chose us, and that, that's, that's why we believe. Ephesians 1 says that before the foundation of the world, he chose us. John 6 says that ultimately, 
You can't even come to the Father unless he draws you. There is that drawing, that choosing and bringing to himself. He brings us to himself. Now, we clearly respond. We do believe. Jesus doesn't believe for us. We do repent. Jesus doesn't repent for us. We really do repent and believe, but we're only enabled to do that as he opens our blind eyes, as he gives spirit to our, his spirit to our dead heart. As he, as, he, as he draws us to himself, as he brings the good news to us so that we hear the good news and it makes sense. That's all his work. So when he says, you did not choose me, it doesn't mean that there was never any kind of response ever in our lives. It just means that he sovereignly came and opened our, whatever image you want to use, opened our lives, eyes, gave us new birth, raised us from the dead. These are all biblical images. He came and did that for us so that we could freely choose and freely respond to him. For us to choose him, he, he had to previously act upon us. That's the idea. And this is not to be a point of spiritual, I mean, a doctrinal debate. He doesn't include this in there so that all the Arminians and all the Calvinists can have a big fight. He, he includes that in there so that anybody who's a Christian could say, why me? Why in the world do I know Jesus when I am undeserving of such a privilege? It is because of his action toward me. It is because he chose me so that I in turn chose him. He's the first chooser, not me. He's the first chooser, not me. He laid down his life for me. He made me his friend. He chose me for himself. Absolutely incredible. So how can I go and express that kind of love to others? Well, all of these are sort of principles. We don't emulate Jesus exactly. No one dies for anybody's sins. No one chose anybody from eternity past but God himself. Uh, you know, no one does that. But we can lay down our life for others. We can put others' needs above our own as we meditate on what Christ has done for us. We can pursue friendship with those who maybe aren't looking for, to, for friendship. We can act in a friendly manner, taking, being proactive, taking initiative to communicate love to other people. We can do that. He made us his friends when we weren't looking for him. Even when we were sinners, Christ died for us, the scripture said. He made us alive. We were dead in transgression and sin, Ephesians 2. He made us alive. He came towards us with love. He came to us. We can do that, expressing friendship with others. And as the Lord gives opportunity, communicating to them the reason why we've been changed. We love them because they're valuable to God. They're image bearers of God created in his image. But we pursue them as friends because God has pursued us as a friend. We choose. We reach out. We're proactive. We don't wait for people to come to us. That's an application of that choose thing, I think. We don't wait. We are taking initiative. Lord, how can I serve the people around me? And so this is Christ's love. Love others as you've been loved. He laid down his life, he made us his friends, and he chose us. And then lastly, briefly, we're drawn to Christ's mission. So union with Christ means connection to his love, but it also means connection to his mission. He didn't just appoint us, but he appointed us for a task. I chose you and appointed you. Well, he chose us to be in his family, the scripture says elsewhere, but chose us to, to know him. But here he chose us and then he directed us to a very specific task, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So it doesn't say mission there, but the idea of going or being sent is all about our mission. So one of the recurring themes in the Gospel of John is that 
Jesus comes and sends his people. It's a primary theme. So, for instance, John 20 is a core verse to the whole book. John 20, 21, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So to be sent, it's, it's the idea of mission. The, the Latin word for sent is where we get our word mission. Uh, and so there's this missionary. We're missionaries in a sense, all of us in, in some sense. We all have a mission, and it's Jesus' mission. We're, if you are in union to him, you're, part, you're connected to his mission. You can't say, I'm connected to Jesus in my personal life. I'm connected to Jesus in church life, but I'm, I'm not evangelistic. I'm not really good around the lost. I'm not really a part of his mission. There's no such thing. If you're connected to Jesus, you're connected to his mission. If you're connected to Jesus, then he wants to give us the heart he has for people who are far from him. If you're connected to Jesus, then he wants to give you the compassion that he has for people who don't know him. And he's put you where he's put you, and he's connected you to whom he's connected you for the purpose of his mission. It's, it's inescapable. You can't just be connected to the parts of Jesus you feel comfortable with. But it's, it's who he is. And so he sends them out. He sends us out. And he sends us out with an unbelievable promise. This isn't a, just a blank check. Whatever you want from God, just tell him and he'll deliver. It's not some kind of blank check. It's in a context. The context is mission. You did not choose me, I chose you and appointed you. So here it is. The context is I appointed you to go and bear fruit and that that fruit would remain. So, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is a prayer that he's saying, I'm giving you the authority. I'm sending you to bear fruit in my authority connected to me. And I'm sending you with power. I will, I will meet your needs and answer your requests. In that process. So it's not just say, hey, I need, I, yeah, I got my Christmas list, and God, here's all the stuff I want. It's not that. It's God will meet your needs as you are about his mission. When you have need, he will give it. Listen, God always wants to answer this prayer. I can't tell you God's will, like what he's going to say yes to and what he's going to say no to, but there's certain things in the Bible that we can feel confident about. This is one of them. If you start your day, you pull out your journal or you, pull, you just think whatever it is and you go, Lord, or you pull out your calendar and go, here's what I've got going today. Lord, today, would you help me to, to, as I'm interacting with others to represent the love of Christ? First of all, let me think about what you've done for me. We can start with these three things. Laid down your life, made me your friend, chose me. Let's, let's think about what you've done for me on the cross. And then how can I communicate that love to others? Lord, I want to communicate your love and to be a witness to people that don't. This meeting, I got this meeting at 2. Or we've got soccer practice at 6 for the kids. And I'm going to encounter so-and-so. Whatever it is. Or I'm talking to my mom tonight on the phone who's an unbeliever. Whatever it is. This thing coming up, Lord, help me communicate your love. God is all about answering that prayer. You can be confident he will help you. You don't have to pray, Lord, if it's your will, I'd be a good witness. Lord, if it's your will for me to be a faithful witness of Jesus, would you answer that prayer? It is his will. It is his mission. He has sent you on it. So ask away. You have not because you ask not, James says. And how often do we just fail to ask? We walk into a situation and we're caught off guard and we're not prepared and we don't serve or love or volunteer or speak up or whatever it is because we don't live conscious of his love and conscious that he sent us to bear fruit. Ask whatever you want, he says. Let's ask for a lot of fruit. Let's ask for many conversions. Let's ask for people to come to Christ confident that he will answer that. 
What Jesus is really doing here is he's laying out an identity for us. The first 11 verses, I'm the vine, you're the branches, you're in union with me. That's what God says about you if you're a believer. You're in union with Christ. You're not just someone over here that believes a set of values and has good Christian values. No, you're connected to Jesus himself. You're in union. Uh, You have a life-giving connection. You're a branch connected to a vine. He says you're his friend. He said he's laid down his life for you. He said he chose you. He said he sent you. He said he's going to answer your prayers as you ask, particularly with regard to mission. Listen to that identity. What is true of you today? If you're in Christ, here's what's true of you today. You're in union with God Almighty. You are connected to life itself, spiritual life of Jesus Christ. You are not dead. You are alive because you're connected to the very source of life, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. That's what God says about you. You are a friend of God. Yes, you're a subject. Yes, you're a worshiper. Yes, you're a creature. All that's true. But you are also a friend of God, and he's invited you into his love and invited you into his mission. You ever think about that? I'm chosen by God. That doesn't make any sense. Why am I chosen? I don't know. But worship, thank him, respond to him humbly. I am sent. You may think, I've got very few gifts. I'm not a good speaker. I have very few skills. I'm not a people person. I'm an introvert. I'm awkward. I don't know what it is. I don't have anything to offer. I'm not very popular. People aren't looking to me. I'm not a source, uh, you know, a resource for people. He says you're sent, and he's going to use whatever gifts you have for his purposes. And you're also, he hears you and he answers Do you see yourself in that way? How would your life look different tomorrow if you woke up and said, this is what God says is true of me? If you really believed that and wanted to live out your callings for his glory because of those things being true, how how would your day look different? What kind of faith and anticipation would you have of God to meet you and to empower you to love and serve other people? Where has God sent you? Where where are the places you go? Who are the people in your life? God wants to bear... fruit through you. And he will start, that often starts by embracing our calling, embracing our identity, who we are in Christ, and then opening our eyes. He may call you to the other side of the world. I don't know. Some of us may be called to go to unreached peoples. I don't know. But what I do know is that you're definitely called right now to the person who lives next door to you. You're definitely called to the person in the cubicle next to you or the person on the job site or your client. You're definitely called to your family You're definitely called to the people in whatever recreational sport you do or the people you golf with or the people on your kid's baseball team or whatever whatever your avocation is. You're, You're definitely called to those people. I know that. So where has he sent you? Who are the people God wants to bear fruit through you? He has sent you to bear much fruit that will remain. You're a sent one. So what are you asking him to do through you? He says, I'm, you're going to bear fruit that remains. Ask whatever you will. Are you asking? Am I asking? I want to close by being very specific. Sometimes we can just be very vague and grandiose. So kind of like love them all, reach them all. That means you're going to do nothing at all. Okay, that's what that means. <laughs> that's what that means. I'm going to save the world. No, you're not going to do anything. Uh, one person. He says he loved us so that we can love one another. One another is probably a Christian term, other followers. Who's one follower of Jesus that you know? Could be in this church, could be somewhere else, but they're a believer in Jesus, and they need to experience the love of Christ. What could you do 
to reach out to them in their need, to express God's love to them. So they just go, wow, I feel like God loves me because you've just demonstrated it to me. Who's that person? And then who's one person that's not a believer that you're sent to to bear fruit? Who's that person? Coworker, family member, neighbor? Who's that one person? Let's think of one believer and one non-believer in Jesus. And then let's say, God, this week, give me something tangible that I can express your love to them. And it might be, might be, it may be out right today. It could be somebody in the room. It may happen right now. That'd be great. But maybe it's someone else. You need to make a phone call. You need to get together with them. You need to drop by. I don't know what it is. Give your time, your money to them, bless them, help them. And then some unbeliever that you can build a friendship with, engage, reach out to. God wants us to bear fruit, but it comes in connection with him as we embrace his love so that we can express that love to others. May God bear much fruit. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.